Psalm 62 is to the choir master, according to Jeduthun, who is a music director in the days of King David, and this is a Psalm of David. I'm going to reverse the word order to show you what the actual Hebrew says, just to emphasize the word alone in the text. Alone for God my soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. Alone, he is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be greatly shaken. How long will all of you attack a man to batter him like a leaning wall, a tottering fence? Alone, they plan to thrust him down from his high position. They take pleasure in falsehood. They bless with their mouth, but inwardly they curse. Alone for God, O my soul, wait in silence. For my hope is from him. Alone, he is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be shaken. On God rest my salvation and my glory, my mighty rock, my refuge is God. Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. Alone, those of low estate are but a breath. Those of high estate are a delusion. In the balances, the scales, they go up. They are together lighter than a breath. Put no trust in extortion. Set no vain hopes in robbery. If riches increase, set not your heart on them. Once God has spoken. Twice I have heard this. That power belongs to God. And that you, O Lord, to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love. For you will render to a man according to his work. Amen. You may be seated. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord, our God, stands firm forever. Amen? As I prepared the sermon lingering in Psalm 62 this week, I couldn't help but keep coming back to the heartbreaking and horrible reality of what happened in Las Vegas last Sunday night at that country music concert with 22,000 people gathered. The nearly uninterrupted rapid fire of a rifle for 10 excruciating minutes as people scattered and climbed over concert barriers and walls for safety. I thought of Psalm 62. How long will you attack people to batter them like a leaning wall, like a tottering fence? As bullets pierced people's bodies and ricocheted off of concrete, people sought shelter under the concert stage and any solid structure they could find. Psalm 62 came to mind. God alone is my rock and salvation, my fortress. I shall not be greatly shaken. And after taking 58 human lives, the shooter took his own life, and then there were the 500 injured people and their friends and family and the rest of us who asked, why? We're grasping for an answer. Why? What's the motive of this evil event? But having the answer to that question still wouldn't change the fact that it happened. And we're still left with Psalm 62. For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence, for my hope is from him. One of our sisters asked at our table talk gathering this week, what do you think God's purpose is in all this? What was God doing in heaven while this was happening last Sunday night? That's the question we all ask in times like this. And, and if Las Vegas isn't jarring enough for our week, you might feel personally wounded or at the end of your rope this week, or maybe you've actually been attacked somehow. Maybe someone's lied about you or slandered you. And you can identify with the psalmist. And he says, how long will this continue? Why do I keep getting picked on? 
Why does it seem that the world is against me? Why can't I make any progress? Why are there so many obstacles? Why is life so hard? Why am I so exhausted? Why is the burden and the pressure unrelenting, threatening to push me off the wall? When we ask that question, why, I think it's helpful not just to look for a, a theological answer or an academic answer. Why do bad things happen? Why do these things happen? But let's remember what we looked at last week, Psalm 72, verse 14, which says that the oppression and violence against the redeemed people of God matters to God, that he cares for his redeemed people and their blood is precious in his sight. That's what makes God real to us. When we realize that he's not just planning or in control of the world, but he actually cares about what happens to us and that he cares enough about our lives that he gave his own life for us. First Peter chapter 1 says that it was by the precious blood of Christ Jesus that we've been redeemed. So God loves his redeemed people and loves their blood in their lives. He loves us enough to give his blood for us and to die for us. And, of course, we can't forget the resurrection. After all the worst the world could do to Jesus, God worked his best in raising him back up again. And, and three days must have seemed like, as you read the gospel accounts, an eternity to the early disciples as they waited for their Lord whose body was still in the tomb. And the world seemed dark, and they seemed defeated. And so, the reality of God, his love and his care and his power for you, and the reality of David's experience in writing Psalm 62, invites us this morning to come and hear what the Holy Spirit has to say to us in our need, in our exhaustion. If you feel on the edge, this is for you, that God is for you a rock and a refuge. This is more than a prayer, it's more than a song. This is a, a deep declaration from David's soul. He's declaring, I need nothing more than God alone. God alone is what will and is now what I need most. God alone is my rock, and he forever will be my fortress. Life hurts, life is war, and this is telling us that our only help in times such as these is God alone. Three declarations the psalmist makes. The first we're going to see is his declaration that his silent soul only has one salvation. One salvation alone, that's why I'm calling it a soul salvation. It's this alone that will help his soul to survive. And that is that God alone is his rock and his fortress. As I read the scripture, you heard the word alone appears six times in the Hebrew, and each time at the very beginning of the sentence, at the top of the declaration, the head of the, the, the bold assertion, alone, God. Well, I trust you. Alone, are you able to carry me and hold up under the weight of all the shaking around me? For God alone, he says, my soul waits in silence. It's hard to wait for God. It's hard to wait in silence. I imagine a few people throughout history, some of those people you read about in church history, maybe the saints of old, that had the type of ability to wait for God silently without complaining, without arguing, without becoming unfaithful. I don't think there are many of us that can say, I typically wait for God very patiently and silently with not a single complaint in my heart or my mind. I'm completely at rest. Everything is steady. It is well with my soul, always and forever. I doubt that many of us can say that. If you can, praise God for that. But more than the picture I have of Psalm 62 of someone going out to the desert or, you know, in, uh, on the lakefront with, um, 
a peaceful, restful feeling inside, or more than someone sitting on their back porch watching the sunrise with a steaming hot cup of coffee as the birds are chirping in the background saying, silently, I'm waiting for you, Lord. I, I picture this. I picture what David actually says in verse 3, during the attack. How long are you going to keep attacking me? I'm under attack. I'm about to fall off my high place. I'm about to be destroyed. And my soul is silent within me. What do you think that, that means? It might mean he's confused, or it might mean he doesn't know what to say because it's too much. He doesn't have the words to describe how he feels. He's simply saying, I'm silent before you, Lord. And he does trust God, but he doesn't know what to do or even speak in this moment. That's quite possibly what he's referring to. Like so much of the southern states recently, now New Orleans is being threatened by yet another tropical storm hurricane where I'm from. I lived through several hurricanes in Louisiana growing up. And there's something about that idea of the eye of the storm, that when the storm comes over, it's such a huge system, a weather system, that there's a, a, a place in the middle of the storm where there's a quiet spot, a peaceful spot, where all the raging, swirling winds and rain all around don't make it into the center at this moment. And there's a, a time where you might think, well, the storm's over. And then here it comes again, and it rages, and it destroys more trees and houses and floods more homes. And yet then after the storm's over, there's another silence. The silence of devastation. The silence of what just happened and how much is this going to cost and did we lose everything? That's a silence too. And I think that might be a type of silence that David experienced often, in, including here in Psalm 62, that, that he was silent before the God who knew that the storm would come and actually was in control of the storm, that he knew that God was the only one that could help him in the storm, that he knew that God was the only healer who could bring redemption after the storm. And so he says, in the chaos, in the crisis, in the attack, in the anxiety, you alone are my fortress. You alone are my resting place. I will be silent. My soul will be still before you. He says in the first verse, I am silent. I, I've been silent. My soul is silent before you. But then, very quickly in verse 5, he then shifts gears and says, I must be silent. He commands himself, soul, be silent. Self, be silent before God. Perhaps the doubts are still growing in his heart. Maybe he was silent at first and doing pretty well. Maybe things are changing. Maybe the fears and the anger is getting to him. Maybe the, the trust is slipping and the chaos around him is, and inside him is, is whipping up like a storm. And so he makes this declaration, soul, shut up, fix your eyes on God. It's not going to help to complain or to worry or to be afraid or to lash out at other people just because you've been hurt doesn't mean you have to hurt someone else. Be quiet. Listen to me. I'm going to coach you. I'm going to counsel you. I'm going to preach to you. So be still. Listen for God. Fix your eyes on Jesus' mighty love. He alone will cover you. His love is powerful. There's nothing like it. I like what Charles Spurgeon says. Faith can hear the footsteps of coming salvation because faith has learned to be silent. Charles Spurgeon lived, you know, a while ago, so he didn't have an iPod with earbuds or a phone all the time or, you know, constant streaming media. So, so we may have to say faith can hear the footsteps of coming salvation because faith has learned to turn off social media maybe for a while, maybe take a, a break and go for a walk out of Lake Michigan. With, with no distractions, and then you can begin to hear the footsteps of salvation. Can you hear God's salvation coming 
into whatever need you have right now, the, the silent soul realizes its only salvation is from the Lord. Waiting is the theme of this psalm, and it's the theme of much scripture. It's the theme of our lives, right? You have to wait. Right? You have to wait to grow up, to have certain privileges with your kids. You have to wait for that right person to come along, to marry so you don't screw everything up. You have to wait, if you've already screwed it up, for some, something better to come along. You have to wait for things that you know you shouldn't have, but you really want, and you just have to deny yourself those pleasures. You have to wait for the pain and the suffering to end, because it's still going to happen until Jesus comes back and the world is turned around. Waiting, waiting, waiting. We're pretty good at waiting. Well, I don't know if we're actually doing well with it, but we, we at least are used to it. Half of life is waiting. Amen? The Israelites at the Red Sea. Imagine them waiting. They just got released from their slavery, busted out of there with ten spectacular plagues, signs and wonders. Now they're standing at the Red Sea, this huge body of water, and here come the horses and the chariots of Pharaoh and the army. And they say, why would you bring us here to the edge of freedom only to have us trampled down by these evil people? Why, God, do we have to wait? And Moses tells the people, trying to encourage them, do not be afraid in Exodus 14. Verse 13, do not be afraid. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance of Yahweh, the Lord. Yahweh will fight for you. You only need to be still. still. As the chariots come pounding down, I just still. Now, why would God make them wait? Well, there's a formula in the Bible. It's like an equation. Here's how it goes. The greater the problem, the longer the waiting period, the more glorious the miracle. I mean, imagine... If the Israelites, the Hebrew slaves, come out of captivity, were standing at a small brook, that they could just lift their little dresses and robes and cross over. Imagine if they came to a mini pond that they could just jog around to get away. Imagine if they had, you know, a year-long head start, and they didn't have to wait at this place of trouble and trial for God to do something. It would not really be much of a miracle if they just walked out. But the greater the burden, the longer the wait, the more seismic and spectacular the power of God on display. Moses says, be still. Shh, be still. Everybody grab your coffee mug. It says, like, be still and know that I'm God. Put your coffee Just have a seat with me here with your lawn chairs on the edge of the Red Sea, and let's just watch and see what God does. And you know what God says to Moses in the very next verse? Don't just stand there crying to me. March into the water. You have to move. They're, they're coming. Watch what I'm going to do. Have faith. Trust me. But step forward. I think it's okay to be still before God in the sense of let your soul be at rest and don't be arguing against God or resting on human strength. Not say, okay, what do we have, what do we have among us? So we've got you know, some sandals we can smack them with. We've got maybe like a couple shovels and rakes that we pulled out of Egypt from our farming days. How can we, humanly speaking, engineer this thing and win this battle against Pharaoh's army? No, that's of course not what it is. He wants us to. He doesn't want us to steal our souls from all of our own reliance and trust on ourselves. But he wants us to move as well when we're still, when we're quiet. Waiting does not mean waiting for the last possible second to plan and prepare for your life. Hello, anybody listening to this? Listen, procrastination is not what Psalm 62 is about. Okay, be still, wait on the Lord. You better stop calling me late at night saying, I should have done this years ago or last week, but I have a last-minute request. Please come help me. And you, you all get the phone call too, and you're like, okay, should I help enable this person again for all the procrastination and not planning properly? Yes, usually I do. 
and sometimes we should, but hear this. Waiting does not mean poor planning, just coasting, being lazy. That's not what it means. Jesus said, count the cost. When you build a tower, you better look at the materials, the money it takes, how many people it takes. Don't just say, hey, I've got a big dream. I'm going to build this big you know, youth center on the south side of Chicago, and then you know, I'm going to announce it in the news, and everybody's going to be talking about it, and all of a sudden, it fails, and it, you know, I'm bankrupt. And, well, that didn't go very well. No, you do have to step out on faith and take some risks, but plan ahead. Waiting for God doesn't mean doing nothing. It means you do what God commanded you to do. And after you do what he told you to do, you wait for the results. You wait for the reward. You wait for him to work it all out in a way that you can't. And you can only do so much, but you better do what you're supposed to do. And then patiently rest and leave the rest to God. Waiting in silence might include things like praying while you're working. Or praying while solving equations. Or praying while looking for work or praying while networking while you're at work. This is the posture of David. While I'm doing something, I'm still before you. I'm patient. I'm trusting. I'm still joyful. I'm hoping in you, and I'm working at it. I might be sweating. I might be bleeding, but I'm waiting for you and you alone. Isaiah 40. I love the way that Isaiah 40 combines at the end of his prophecy in chapter 40 the idea of working while resting. Listen to what he says. Those who wait on Yahweh, the Lord, will renew their strength. You wait, your strength is renewed. They will mount up on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not do what? Thanks. Weary. Working and resting at the same time. Running and resting. Waiting and working. You see? It's seamless. It's life. This is the rhythm of our life. We trust the Lord always. Second Peter chapter 3, another amazing verse, says, hard to believe, you ought to be people living in holiness and godliness. Now just stop there and ask yourself, am I living in holiness and godliness? Let that simmer for a minute. You ought to be people living in holiness and godliness. He's talking about the end coming. He's talking about Jesus coming. He's saying you don't have forever. One day Jesus will come and you'll stand before him and be judged. For your life, you'll have to give an account, and the whole world will change. All the wicked things will be wiped away, burned up. All that's good, righteous, and peaceful will be established. Now, you ought, in light of this, to live holy and godly lives, waiting and hastening the coming day of God. Say what? How I live my life, even waiting, actually hastens the coming day of God? What does that mean? I don't know. It says it. I'm not sure how it works, but the mystery is that the day that Jesus comes back to set the world aright again, your life matters somehow in hastening that day to come. You're waiting for him, hastens him to come back somehow. When the church is doing its job, when we're sharing the gospel and serving the lost and the needy and the poor and the oppressed, when we're doing our job, when we're loving each other, when we're looking to Jesus and trusting in him, somehow, I don't know how, he says it hastens the coming day of God. Are you living a life godly and holy? Trusting in God alone. The second declaration the psalmist makes here is the smoke and mirrors of selfish sin are that. 
They're nothing. Smoke and mirrors, vanity, just a breath, a puff of air. It's here, it's gone. He says in verse 3, how long will you attack a man? How long will all of you attack a man? How long, that's a question asked a lot in the Bible, in the book of Psalms. You know what the answer to the question, how long is? A long time. It's always the answer. He wouldn't be asking if it wasn't the answer, a very long time. If it was not a long time, he'd be like, I'm glad that's over, praise God. But he's saying, how long will you attack me? How long am I under this pressure, this weight, this burden, this evil? All of you, how long will all of you attack me? This is a lot of people attacking David. Many people on every side. We see that in the stories about King David and all of God's people. Sometimes you don't have to guess who your enemies are. Some people are just plain nasty, vile. They're villains. They're thugs. You don't have to wonder when they start shooting at you or they punch you or they curse and abuse you. You don't have to wonder if they're stealing from you and, and they're mean mugging you. You don't have to wonder who some of your enemies are. Pretty obvious. But things get complicated because, as David shares later in the psalm, not everybody is as overt or outward in their display of anger and hostility and hatred towards you. Some people are kind of like the snake in the Garden of Eden. Sinister, sly, crafty, slippery. They twist the truth. Did God really say that you can't eat the fruit? and touch it. And did God really say that in the Bible? I mean, times have changed. Have you seen the opinion polls lately? Have you seen the scientific data and the statistics on this subject? You really still believe that this is true? Our enemies want to twist, subtly subvert your faith and even your life. Verses 4 and verses 9 and 10 describe these slippery people. They bless with their mouths, but inwardly they curse. Those are called Milli Vanilli friends. Anybody get a witness to Milli Vanilli in here? Anybody know who Milli Vanilli is? You know, blame it on the rain. I don't know why they sing their songs, but you blame it on the rain, I guess. They put the music on with someone else singing, and then they stand up on stage just... They are Milli Vanilli friends. They bless you with their mouth. Such a great crowd. I love, I love that sweater you're wearing. You know, you're looking so good. And then they, behind your back, curse you in their heart, gossip about you behind your back. Lip speaking their blessings. But in their heart, they're envious of you, they're plotting against you, they're trying to figure out how to step on you and step over you to get what you have. Verses 9 and 10 tell us these people are but a breath. Don't pay any attention to them. We'll get to that in just a second. But instead, trust in God and what He says. Verse 8, trust in Him. Pour out your heart. At all times, O oh people, that means in hard times, in the very long waiting times, verse 10, do not trust in riches. Trust in Him. Don't trust in them. Trust in Him, O oh people, in God. Don't trust in anything else in the world. Riches, power, your own ideas of what might be good for you. Trust in Him and His Word. We, we often rightly say, I, I've heard several of you say it, trust has to be earned. I don't trust that person or I don't respect them because respect has to be earned. I agree. In general, trust has to be earned. But let's talk real for just a minute, okay? Real talk. I want you to be really honest with yourself. Do you only trust people that have earned your trust? Do you only respect people that deserve your respect? Hmm. I don't think so. Who are some people you've trusted and respected, and they don't deserve anybody's respect, and they certainly don't deserve your trust because of what they've done to you. But why do you keep going back to people like that or money like that? Right, let me ask you a question. Has money earned your trust? 
Does money always come through for you? Do you get it whenever you want it? Is it just like raining down upon you? You say, I can trust money any given moment of the day. This is my, I'm going to stand on the solid rock of money because it will never leave me or forsake me. Why do you pursue relationships with people and things in the world that do not hold you? They're not solid. They crumble. They disappoint you. Yes, trust the ones that earn and deserve your trust and respect. Who's that? God alone, for starters, okay? And then slowly, some good people in your life, a few people that you can learn to lean on. Living in this world, we often wonder, who can I trust? My advice is always, very few. Love everybody, help many people, and trust very few. Why do I say that? That's not just my thoughts or things. That's what Jesus said in John's Gospel, chapter 2, the last couple verses of that chapter. Jesus had a huge fan club, a big following. He was, he was doing all sorts of miracles, and they were like, hyped up by these miracles. We love you, Jesus. You're so awesome. Like, do something for me. Give me some of that miracle, uh, miracle whip or miracle action, whatever you want to call it. They were whipped up into a frenzy. You know what Jesus said? He stood back. He assessed the situation. He looked at these people, and he said, Well, John says this about him. Jesus did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and he needed no one to explain human flakiness. That's my translation. He needed no one to tell him what was wrong with people for he himself knew what was in man. He knew how weak and unstable and untrustworthy we are, so he didn't trust us. Why should you trust people that Jesus didn't trust? Trust must be earned. Jesus has earned my trust. Has he earned your trust? Anybody? Thank you. you. Come join me up here if you want to. I don't care. If he's earned your trust, he deserves to be praised. Amen. We know human hearts firsthand. I know myself. I know how untrustworthy I can be. We know people have hurt us that best friends have broken their promises to us, broken wedding vows to us. Church vows seem like a joke to some people who get up and take them right in front of you and me and they take those vows and then sometimes those people don't come back to the church after they just vow before God, I will be here for you. I'm in. Tight. You and me. Mm, yeah, lifelong. We got this. We don't take lifelong vows in the church, but at least like a week, can we at least give a seven-day vow? You aren't even back after seven days? We know what's in the human heart. People have judged us. They've attacked our character. They've gossiped behind our backs. Someone wants your job promotion, and they're going to do whatever it takes to get that. Parents let you down. We can name a long list of how we can't trust people, because we know what's in the human heart. Verse 4 says, here's what these enemies are like. They only plan to pull you down from your high position. They're looking for that tottering fence moment as David describes it. They're looking for that weak spot in the fence, that Achilles heel, and you're like, your little flaw that they can exploit and take advantage of and put you down, humiliate you, climb over you. Some people just can't stand to see you succeed. They're like those crabs in the bucket. You know how crabs do in the bucket, right? When you have a bunch of them in the crab, we have them in Louisiana, we go crabbing and put them in the bucket. And, and let's say that one of those crabs tries to climb out of the bucket and he gets one of those little claws up at the top for the lip, and he pulls himself up like a one-arm pull-up. What's going to happen? The other crabs are going to say, uh-uh. You come right back down here. They grab him with their claws, and they pull him back down. We'll say, he does it again. They grab him again. If he keeps trying, they're going to start ripping his claws off. They will kill the crab that tries to escape the pot that's about to boil. If we're going down, you're going down with us. 
That's how sinners are. If I'm down here in the pit, I want you to be, I don't want you to succeed. I don't want you to be happy or holy. I want you to sin and be miserable with us down here. I'm going to look for that moment where I can take advantage of you, trip you up, pull you down. But here's the thing. We've all been pushed down or pulled down. We've all been hurt by other people. So how do we respond to that? Do we fight back? Do we rip their claws off too and kill them? Do we attack right away and always fight fire with fire? Is that our response as Christians? Jesus says, if you find yourself in a humble place, and he doesn't say how you got there. He says, if you're humble, I've got your back. I will exalt you. You know, the humble place is the new high place. That's what Jesus is saying. The lowly place is the new exalted place. When you're low, then you're going to be high. When you're down, I'm going to raise you up. You can't be up if you're already there and you're trying to stay up there at this worldly place of security, trusting in your own power and what other people think about you. I'm going to actually personally pull you down from that, Jesus says. But if you're down there, humble, trusting me, patient, brokenhearted, alone, afraid, I will lift you up. I will be your rock and your fortress that no one else can be. Verse 7. On God rests my salvation and my glory. That is our trust. God is my salvation. God is my glory. Or you can translate that word as honor, which means like our reputation, our respect. So where are you looking for respect, brothers and sisters? If it's not from God, who is the only solid rock, and that's the only solid honor, then whatever respect you get is just going to be pretend respect, fake. Being fake is worthless. Like nobody wants to be fake, but we all do fake things to try to get people's approval. I do. I think you do. I have like a fake detector that sometimes goes off. And I think sometimes I see it in some of you, and I see it in myself. And I know that what verse 9 says is true. Those of low estate are but a breath. Those of high estate are a delusion. These Literally, it just simply says the son of, sons of men are but a breath, or vanity, or like nothing, just a puff of air. The sons of men. Who, who's included in that group? We're all... The sons of men. We're all sons and daughters of humanity. We're human. And then the very next phrase, those of high estate, actually translates literally the sons of males. So if you have a father that contributed to your birth, then you're included in this. We're just a delusion if all that we're living for is the world. All people, sons of men, sons of males, men, women, children. If all we're trusting in and living for is what people think or what the world says or the power of money and we're willing to grab it and steal it and trust in it, he says, it's just a breath. You put that on a scale, you know, like the old style scales that were balances. You put all the value and opinions of the world and all your thoughts about what you think is good for yourself and compare that to the scripture and God's will and God alone. What's going to happen? He said the scales will fly up on the side of the world, in your opinion. It'll just be like nothing's on there. Even if you don't even have anything on the scale and you put the value of the world and the value of what you think is secure, if it's not God, you have nothing on the scale. You put that on there and the scale's still going to rise on that side, like a helium balloon. It's just so weightless and so nothing. But you can't trust in it. It's here for a moment and then poof, it's gone. It's popped. It's not even a thing anymore. Only God can hold the weight of your life and mine. Everything else is weightless. Second Timothy chapter 3, we read it as our confession of sin. I just want you to think about it again. Hopefully you lingered on that before we confessed. But think about, check these off as we read them. Am I, in these last days, a lover of self? He got me already in the first one. Like, of course I love myself. Like, dang, I thought I was going to make it through at least like number five. 
before I got saved. Lover of money? Have you ever loved money? Proud? Arrogant? Ungrateful? Anybody in here have been ungrateful? Unholy? Heartless? Have you ever just looked at someone in need and just didn't even have a heart? Unappeasable. Nothing can make you happy. I mean, I've got kids like this. I, I, yes, I can check these off for all of us in my family. Without self-control. Oh, I can stop anytime I want. Oh, really? Well, exercise self-control and stop doing what you're not supposed to be doing. Without self-control. Brutal. We've been brutal to each other. Not loving good. Do you really love what's good? Reckless, treacherous with our words, with our lives, with our relationships, swollen with conceit, got the big head, all swole up with pride, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Anybody in here ever love pleasure more than God? God is pleasure. God is the purest pleasure. God is the, the endless pleasure. But have you ever chosen those weightless, worthless things that are just gone like dust on the scales over God, who is ultimate reality, the only thing that will last, the only thing that will satisfy? We are lovers of pleasure rather than of God. We have the appearance of godliness. We put the tie on. We get up and preach sermons. But we deny His power. We pretend, we fake it, appearing to be Christians, but we're just eaten up inside. We're lost, we're lonely, we're in the dark, we're hurting. This is the psalm for us. Paul says to Timothy, if you have people like that in your life, avoid them. Avoid those. Avoid such people, he says. And we read that as our last statement on the confession of sin. Avoid such people, you're probably like, ooh, what do I do with that? <laughs> hmm, well... I have a problem with that because I'm around people like that all the time. We work with people like that. We worship with people like that. We live with people like that. We are such people. We are the sinners that this book describes. Psalm 62 is not you against the world. It's, it's you having to be transformed from the world that's in you and all in your mind. And this is what you trust in and believe in. It's King David not saying, hey, trust in God alone. That means it's you against the world. You're the only person that really has the nerve to do this. Everyone else is just a sinner and all these other people are your enemies. No, we're all in this together. King David is trying to wisely lead us out of the place that he himself was in. Trusting in falsehood, in idols, in, in his own power as the king. He's saying, like Paul says to Timothy in the next verse, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 10. Paul says to Timothy, follow my teaching, follow my conduct, follow my aim in life, follow my faith, my patience, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings. Oh, you could have left that part out, Paul. <laughs> I'll follow your faith and your aim and all this, but your persecutions and your sufferings. Yes, follow me. I am out here dying for Jesus. I'm suffering for the people, for the church. I'm giving my life for the gospel. Follow me. Now, Paul wasn't saying I'm perfect and I'm not a lover of self. He just told us in the first chapter, right off the top, in Second Timothy chapter one, I'm the chief of sinners. You got me right off the top too. I'm a sinner. But I'm trying to trust in God alone. I'm trying to put my weight on Him. and He's my refuge. He's my rock. Do that with me, Timothy. Let's do it together. This isn't about doing it all alone. When I say trust in God alone, I'm not saying don't trust any person. I hope that some of you trust me more and more. I hope that I can trust you. But what I'm saying is we have to learn to trust God alone together. Like Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the German theologian and pastor who was executed by Hitler at the end of World War II, Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote in his great book, Life Together, let the person who cannot be alone beware of community. Okay? You're like codependent, real needy person, you're always clinging to people. Beware of how you're using your friends and your family and your coworkers and whoever else 
to meet your needs that maybe God should be meeting those first and foremost. Beware of community if you cannot find yourself alone before God for any length of time. Then he says, let the person who's not in the community beware of being alone. You isolate yourself, you're an introvert, you don't like being around. When we say, hey, join us for a meal after church, you eat and run. We say, come on Monday or Tuesday to Woodlawn or High Park. We have these tablecloths. We love you. We want to get to know you. Never have you showed up. Maybe you're busy. That's fine. We say, we have these app groups, you know, prayer, accountability, getting into each other's lives. Just hook up with a couple people in the church. Let's do life together. Mm, I don't want to be known like that. I've been here for three, four years. I've been here for three, four months. I'm just going to come and sing, pray, eat, leave. Dietrich Bonhoeffer says, beware of why that's happening. True friends help us to see the invisible physics of how God's grace works. I need two volunteers. Um, how about this? Donovan and Red, could you guys grab the big whiteboard that's right through that door, leaning against the little wall of fame back there? Could you guys grab that for me? I'm going to illustrate the physics of God's invisible grace to you right now. We're going to talk about how we can help each other in a community to trust God more. The physics of our faith. We're going to build our faith together as a church. So, this past week, I started, uh, I continued a project in my home, so I took it to a new level. I was putting a new mortar in the brick joint on the side of my house where water was coming in and into my house. So, I ground out the grinder, and now I'm catching up with new mortar. And so, I was um, privileged to have Red and Augusta company yesterday to try to finish some things up before it rained. And uh, we were standing on the second story building of my neighbor's house, and my building's here, three stories, and we're standing on this drop off which goes two stories down two stories down here, and we were standing on the edge with some two-by-fours, we had two two-by-fours and a platform of plywood right here, and we were doing brick work, and Red saw me do that and said, Pastor Brad, uh, are you sure you want to stand on that platform? Because, like, we need a pastor tomorrow on Sunday. And I was like, bro, I have to. No, I'm just watching. Watch what I did last week. I showed him the diagram of what I did last week, and he saw it all laid out there. But, you know, Psalm 62 did come to my life. How long, oh man, will you get there before the wind topples you down? It was pretty windy yesterday. But I'm up here on this platform, and Red was standing there with me. But I said, look what I did last week, Red. I was in the same spot. Let's just draw reverse here. Same drop off. And so here I am on my neighbor's roof right on the edge, and I put this piece of plywood right there like a seesaw. See that? Like a seesaw. <coughs> and I stood on the edge over the two-story drop off right here stood right there and used my grinder to grind out my building. Okay? Now, how did I do that? By faith. And <laughs> the person, and I think you should at least listen to me and explain how it happened, because this is not something people normally do. How did I, who weigh 150 pounds, stand on this platform on the seesaw with no one else standing on the other end of the seesaw? Hmm? Anybody want to take a guess? How did I preserve me? I did not fall. I was able to grind that stuff out for hours without falling. By faith, exactly. And also by this. Here's the difference. Alright? So I took a 2x4 and I put two screws in it right here, into that board. Then I put another one right here on the end of that with three screws. So five screws holding two 2x4 together on the edge of that board. And then I took a 40 pound concrete block and I put it right here on the edge of the board, just resting on the rooftop, like that, the center block. 49. I'm on the How much is that? 49. This is the block. But I never fell. The seesaw never fell. <coughs> Why? Because this is a lever, folks. It's a lever. It's a 10-foot lever. And every foot you add to a lever, the weight of the end increases 
The distance travels, how much load is on the end of that seesaw. So I was able to accomplish, by faith and physics, more than you've done before, you know, always, you have done these questions always, and I was up there on my own standard edge, meeting them like this running for that long. That's amazing, right? It's amazing. I start respecting presence, right? Um, so then Rick sees this diagram. He didn't see me actually, but he saw the diagram. He tried to be enough of a person. If he said, okay, so he went from like putting one foot on my roof and one foot on the platform and working like this. He went all the way back. Okay, and he said, okay, okay. And he tried not to go speed on the platform. Give this man a hand. He trusts the platform. I say, now, granted, he had two two by fours, probably other than those people actually for red. But together in the community, we said, let's step closer to the edge. Let's step out over the precipice by faith together. We encourage each other, and by the physics of faith, we survive. Amen? Okay, thank you guys. Thank you. The strong and safe love of God is the final declaration. It's just, it's just two verses that the psalmist describes. In his final declaration, he says, once God has spoken, twice I've heard this. That's a Hebrew way to say, listen up, I'm emphasizing it. It's a wisdom statement here. God spoke once, means he didn't stutter. Okay? He did not stutter. His word cannot fail. His word does not change. His word will not expire. God spoke once, twice I've heard this. That means listen up. It's worth hearing again and again. It's worth meditating on over and over. Hear it with your ears and your mind. Hear it with your heart. God spoke once. Let's listen twice. That power belongs to God, and that to you, O Lord, belongs chesed. There it is. One of our favorite words. Steadfast love. To you belongs power and steadfast love. You are merciful, and you are mighty. This is one thing you better never forget about God, is His love never fails. His love is eternal. It's a pre-existing condition. You can tell your insurance company about this. God's love is a pre-existing condition before you even existed. His love will never fail you. His love will continue through all your procrastinating, all your false hopes and your idols that you're making, all the things you put your trust in that you shouldn't, and the people you respect and the money you try to grab. He loves you through that nonsense. All your complaining about how long you have to wait, all your sinning, when you take the shortcuts and do it your way instead of this way, His love still shows and shines through for you. And it showed up most powerfully, most mercifully and mightily at the cross. I love the cross. Who alone would be so mighty that he could take the sins of the whole world upon his own soul? Who alone is so mighty that he could raise himself from the dead? Who alone is so loving that he would take everything that you and I did, and he did none of it, and he fully entered in and took the penalty, the, the burden. He was crushed by the weight of sin for you and me. Who alone would do that? But the man who died upon the cross, Jesus, our Lord and our Savior, he absorbed the brutal penalties, penalties of all the enemies and all the oppression of the world. You, you and I complained about He took all of it on himself. Every other Savior, so-called Savior, every other idea, philosophy, other ideas of God, any other um, ways of you living besides the cross, it's, it's, it's nothing. It's breathless. It's vanity. It's, it's, it's going to pass away in a second. It's nothing. Only God is utterly powerful, utterly loving. Jesus himself said, no one is good but God alone. So then why does the end with verse 12 in Psalm 62? If no one's good but God alone, he alone is powerful and loving then why does he say, for you will render to a man according to his work? That means you're going to give me what I deserve. 
I'm going to work. You're going to pay me. Does anybody here want to sign up and volunteer to stand before the holy presence of Almighty God and just jump out courageously and say, give me what I deserve? Anybody want to do that? You just want to step out in front of the blazing holiness of God and say, give me what I really deserve. Give me what I've earned, God. Oh, I hope not. We've deserved hell. We've deserved and earned judgment. How do we understand verse 12 then? Is it just an Old Testament thing, you know? No. No, this is how we should understand it, I, I would suggest. This whole psalm has been about the weakness of man and the greatness of God. You're the only thing I trust, God. You're only my hope. I'm not hoping in my works. I'm only hoping in you. So why does he say at the end, give me what's according to my work? Here's why. Because I trust you, God, that even my crappy work that I've messed up, the things I couldn't get to in my to-do list, the things I failed when I tried, all of those things, I still believe that you're powerful and you're merciful. I believe that you'll give me power to keep trying when I fail. And when I feel tired, like we feel tired right now, don't we? Right? Just the, the burden right on, Elaine. I mean, any of you in school, right? Any of you who have kids, any of you who may just move this weekend, you know, we're tired. We're tired of looking for help and work and finance. He says, but I'm powerful. I love you. I love you. I died for you. I rose for you. See, there's two tests we can, we can look at. The, the pride test and the prayer test. You know, are we really trusting this loving, powerful God? The pride test goes something like this. What's your OQ? Not your IQ, that's your intelligence quotient. What's your offense quotient, your OQ? How easily offended are you? When people insult you, how quickly are you to throw it right back at them? You're not trusting the Lord very much for his power or love then. You're trying in your own power and your own strength without any love to get back at them. Okay, so work on trusting God in your relationships. The pride test. Humble yourself. Find strength in his grace. It's strong grace. Charles Spurgeon again says, if any man thinks ill of you, don't be angry with him, for you're worse than he thinks you be. Yeah. Go ahead and tell me. <laughs> Let me give you some new ones you don't even know about. I'm going to tell you how bad I really am, okay? You think you got something on me? Come on. Okay, the second test is the prayer test. How often when you're on the edge of life, exhausted, shattered, anxious, and attacked, do you rely on prayer? Or how often do you rely on your own wits, your experience, money, power, other people that you think you can trust more than God? Pour out your heart at all times, O people, he says. Trust in him alone. Prayer. Let it be woven through everything you do. Prayerful waiting is hopeful waiting. You might not feel very hopeful, but if you're praying, that means there's hope. That means you still know there's a God and he's worth asking and waiting for. Waiting, all waiting, all the waiting you're doing right now in life, it all has an expiration date. Everything you're waiting for, one day you'll either get that thing that you're longing for, even though it takes a very long time sometimes, either you're going to receive it or you're going to die and your waiting's going to expire, okay? So you're waiting and you get it, waiting's over. You're waiting and waiting and waiting, you die, waiting's over. Some things we will never get in this life that we want so desperately. But those things God doesn't want us to have, apparently. Not good for us. Shannon's grandmother died on Friday in Minnesota. But, you know, she was old enough to pass the point of waiting for all those things in life to just be fulfilled and her dreams to come true. She said, okay, I've got a full life now. Now I'm crossing over to, I want to go home. I want to be with Jesus, she said. She's been saying that for, I think, a few years now. So all of her waiting has ended. Now she's dead in this world, 
but alive in the world just beyond where Jesus lives. She has had all her hopes fulfilled now, even the ones that didn't get fulfilled in this life. Waiting in Christ, filled hope, is always going to lead in resurrection, never expiration. So, earthly waiting always expires. Hope has no expiration date. That is why God alone is our rock and our salvation, for our hope is from Him. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you as we come to you in prayer that you alone can do these things. You can give us faith. You can help us to walk out on a limb or a seesaw of a piece of plywood. You can help us to take risks to love people that have hurt us. You can help us to humble ourselves.